The gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. Please follow along with me. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met with him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the infallible and inerrant word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture in Luke chapter 9. We looked at the first part of this passage, Jesus on the mountain with Peter and James and John. Uh, we looked at that passage in November. As they watched Jesus transfigured before them, they saw something of his pre-incarnation glory, the glory of the Son of God, even as he spoke. Wouldn't you love to see him? As he spoke, to Elijah and Moses. Uh, they joined him there. And they spoke of the cross. We had a wonderful Lord's Day looking at that passage. The title of the message was uh, Glory. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed that Sunday uh, because it is a prelude to the message today. It's, it's really linked uh, 
to the message today, Luke, for a reason, put uh, those two episodes together. They're two, look like they couldn't have much to do with each other, but they have everything to do with each other. And Luke put them back to back, and we'll see why this morning. Before we do, let's pray and ask him to teach us. <clears throat> Our Father, we bow before you as your priests at Christ Presbyterian. All of us together are priests, your priests. We're prophets. We're bringing God's word to Fayette County, all of us together in our individual lives, in our families, wherever we go during the week and here on the Lord's Day. But we're also a kingdom of priests. We're a church of priests bringing our neighborhood, bringing our families, bringing each other before you in prayer. We thank you for the privilege. We thank you for how you have heard our prayers, answered our prayers, how you have healed both physically and spiritually through these prayers. Our Father, we thank you this morning for uh, the birth of Helena Vanderpool. We thank you for the health of Amanda and Helena. We pray that you'll keep them from complications and that, uh, Father, uh, they will continue to be strengthened day by day. We pray for Robert Osborne, especially that you would speak to him and comfort him as only you're able to speak and comfort. We pray that you would speak to us, through us, to him. Uh, that he would find comfort in uh, the love, the friendship, the partnership of this congregation. Our Father, we pray that he would be able to, to move his father here to this area. Help him in this. Our Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner that you would bring healing, that you would bring strength to her body, strength for this week. We pray, Father, for Jim Bennington. Thank you for how you have blessed him and how you've strengthened him. We pray for Janet Sartell, that she would be able to tolerate these treatments and that they would be effective in, uh, Father, halting the growth of this tumor. All these things are in your hands, Father. We don't pray wishing. This is not a wish. We're coming and asking you as our Father. You've told us to come and ask. And so we come and ask. As children, ask a Father. Thank you. Now we pray, as we open your word, that you would teach us. John Sartell is not able to teach. So that we are changed to the core of our being. So that we supernaturally grow in Christ. No man that stands behind this desk has that ability. But Father, we've heard you speak in this place. We're not the same people we were. You have brought changes in us. 
And so once again this morning, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. And you would change us, continue to change us, maybe change some of us for the first time. Give us faith, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. From the glory of the mountain to the chaotic mess of the world. This was indeed a chaotic scene. When you take the descriptions of Matthew and Mark and Luke of this episode, and you put them together, you get a complete picture. Peter, James, and John had just walked down the mountain with Jesus from the greatest experience. James, John, and Peter, they had never seen anything like this. And immediately, they encountered a large crowd. A boy being thrown about wildly by a demon. A father praying, pleading loudly for his son. The disciples debating loudly with the religious leaders. It was bedlam. Peter and James and John probably turned to each other and said, let's go back to the mountain. It was a Sunday afternoon. She called me to tell me that she didn't know whether to give up on herself as a Christian and a mother or whether she should just sell her children. She had returned home from a great worship experience at church. She had been down and, and the Lord had really encouraged her. She walked in her front door and discovered one of her children was sick at his stomach. It was ugly. Two other children were fighting over the use of a phone. The house that was clean when she left was a complete mess. And on top of that, in the midst of this all, her former husband called to tell her that he had remarried that weekend. All of us can pick out places in our lives like that, times in our lives like that. When we go from the peace and confidence of being spiritually blessed to the noise and confusion and indeed evil of this world. That's what exactly what happened to the disciples. And nothing happens by accident. Jesus knew when they came off the mountain. He knew that this would be there. They had had a spiritual experience that was beyond anything they had ever known. Certainly, they thought our lives will be forever changed after we've seen this. But it was not like that. Immediately, they were snatched into a world of arguing disciples, a world of failure, an attack by religious leaders, a confrontation with the demonic, and of all places and times, Jesus began to speak once more of his own violent death. Why can't we? There's something in us as Christians 
once we experience these great blessings, there's something in us that always wants to stay there, to dwell there. Why can't we? That brings us to our first point this morning. Spiritual experiences with Jesus and his word are meant to strengthen us and prepare us. Look at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up into a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Two months ago, we looked in detail at this gigantic spiritual event. Peter, James, and John had seen much in their lives, incredible miracles in their lives, but nothing that they had seen came near to what happened on that mountain. I want to ask you, why did Jesus give them this experience? Why did he allow them to see this pre-incarnation glory? He did not mean it to be some kind of spiritual upper. He was not saying, you can't believe what this will do to you. It was to confirm their confession. To say, yes, indeed, you said, you confessed, I am the Christ, the Son of God. Indeed, this is who I am. And I am more gigantic than you have imagined. It was to broaden their understanding, their resolve, their faith. That was the purpose of that time on the mountain. Just after the disciples' great confession, what had happened? Jesus had changed the content of his message. His message was no longer about his identity. His message was no longer about who he was. His message was what I have come to do. It was about his death and resurrection. That mountaintop experience was preparing Peter and James and John for the cross for, for the Golgotha that lay ahead. We so often want the spiritual experience just for the experience. Just to say, wow, we don't want the growth. We don't want it to be in preparation for greater service. We don't want it to be in preparation for sacrifice. We want the ecstasy of the experience. I, I want that. In popular evangelicalism, so many ministers and churches are just promoting and just seeking some kind of great spiritual experience. Come to this church and you will have this great spiritual experience. You'll have this spiritual ecstasy, if you will. Like one goes to a great festival of Christian music to get high. Just like the world goes to the rock concert to get high. That's not why Jesus gave them this experience. It was about 18 years ago, a friend and brother was in the hospital and he was dying. He would go home to be with the Lord in less than two weeks. He knew what was happening. We talked. He said, John, 
I have learned. He, he had been in, in this church where we were for about 10 years. And during that 10 years, he had grown immensely. He said, he said, in my previous experience, he said, I didn't, I didn't learn, I didn't grow like I did when I came to this church. He said, I'd never experienced anything like it. He said, now I know. He's in this hospital bed. And I'm sitting there. We're just talking. Two men. He said, John, I know all of that in the last 10 years was preparing me for what's happening right now, for what's been happening these last few months. He said, if this had happened 10 years ago, I would have not been prepared. I could not have handled this. He said, I'm ready. That's what God does. Week after week after week, as we experience these blessings, he's preparing us for what lies ahead. He's preparing us to live in that fallen world. Let me tell you, if God is blessing you and giving you extraordinary purposes or experiences through worship and study, know this. Know this. If you're going through a study, you say, I love this. This is awesome. And you, and, and you know the Holy Spirit is teaching you in your heart. Know this, that he's planning on putting you in places where you will need to draw on all of the growth, on all those experiences that he's brought. Tony Campolo, a, a Christian writer, speaks of a, a black minister, his black minister, in fact, in his church. And uh, he, he preached a wellness minister, preached a well-known Easter message entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And he was looking at the horrors and the pain of the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And he was saying, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. The resurrection's coming. That is what we think when, and what we say when everything is dark all around us. It may be dark, but the glory's coming. Folks, there's another side to that. And it's the side that we see in this passage. As the Lord draws us close to him, as we, as we grow in Christ, as we walk out of a worship and, and say, I was so blessed today by that. I've, I've, I'm, I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm growing in heart. I'm growing in soul. I'm growing in mind. As we walk away saying, I've never experienced anything like that. Then you better get ready. It may be Sunday, but Monday through Friday is coming. And it's tough. It's tough. Spiritual experience with Jesus and his word are meant to strengthen us, are meant to prepare us. Secondly, 
Jesus has called us to live in a fallen world, not on the mountaintop. Look at chapter 9, verse 33. As the men were leaving, that was Moses and Elijah, Jesus, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good to be here. Let us put up three shelters, three shines, one, shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. Hey, let's build some shrines. Let's live, put up some tabernacles and stay right here. Let's not leave. This is great. And what did Jesus bring them from that mountain to face? Look at verse 37 the next day when they Notice he says it. When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd. You see how intentional this was. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He's my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth, and he scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. What a contrast. They had been on the mountain had seen the glory of the Son of God as it was in heaven. And they came off of the mountain to face a father pleading with Jesus to heal his son who was possessed by a demon. There was confusion because all the other disciples had been trying to heal him and to no avail. Mark also records of all things that the disciples we're arguing with the teachers of the law over this episode. You have a demonic son, a pleading father, perplexed disciples, arguing religious leaders. I'm sure that Peter and John and James looked at each other and said, you got to be kidding. But that was the point. Jesus was saying, James, John, and Peter, this is what your ministry will be about. I'm not calling you to go live on that mountain. I'm calling you to battle the demons, to live in a fallen world, and to bring light to that dark world. In John 17, Jesus is praying this prayer to his father. It's toward the end of his ministry, and he's praying for his disciples. Look, on, look at John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. My prayer is not that you take them to the mountaintop, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're living in a fallen world, Father. They're living in a hard world. They're living in a wilderness. Many Christians want to live in this holy isolation. Want to live in, in some kind of sanctuary. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great, great preachers of the last 2,000 years, said this. Listen to it. These places of worship are not built so that you may sit here comfortably and hear something that will make you pass away your Sundays with pleasure. A church in London, he was a minister in London, a church in London which does not exist to do good in the slums and in the kennels of the city and in the dens is a church that has no reason to justify its longer existing. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight with evil, to destroy error, 
to put down falsehood, a church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up the righteous. It is a church that has no right to be. Not for thyself, O church, dost thou exist, any more than Christ existed for himself. His glory was that he laid aside his glory. Folks, spiritual experiences with Jesus and his word are meant to strengthen us. And Jesus has called us to live in the midst of that fallenness. That's where he's put us. That's what we're about. Thirdly, some Christians are ill-prepared to confront the power of evil in this fallen world. That's what we see in this passage. Here were these disciples. They had been with Jesus for over two years, and they could not heal this man. Look at what the man said. They could not heal this boy. Look at Luke 9.40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. How often could the world say that about us? Jesus, I begged the church to do something. And they could not. Jesus was really frustrated with them. Look at verse 41. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. I love when Jesus uses words like that. You know, you would have a difficult time listening to Martin Luther preach. He said things from the pulpit that would be considered impolite in our day. Uh, you would have had a, we would have had a hard time with John the Baptist preaching. I mean, you know, how often do I look at you and say, you brood of vipers? That's, that's how John the Baptist started his message. Jesus was angry. He was angry with his disciples. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Perverse and unbelieving generation. I think there were three reasons why that these disciples weren't effective. And we need to hear them because it's the same reason we're ineffective. First, they were blind to the depth and power of evil. Both Matthew and Mark record that the disciples asked why the evil did not respond to their efforts. And Jesus said, that's what Jesus said. Your lack of faith and your lack of prayer. You didn't understand. You looked at this evil and you thought, hey, it's a piece of cake. He said, you didn't understand how powerful evil really is. He was saying, guys, opposing evil is now not about uttering some formula. It's not about just taking a stand. Evil is tough. Its roots are deep. It's real. Look at the facts as recorded. Jesus said plainly that a demon had a boy in his grip. He did not say, now listen to me, he did not say, nor does the Bible teach, that seizures are usually caused by the demonic. You know, the people in the 20th century, 21st century, Read this passage. They say, oh, those people were so provincial back then. They were ignorant. They didn't know. They attributed everything to demons. That's not true. You read through the Gospels. The, the, here it says in, in one of the other, uh, in either Mark or Matthew, it talks that this demon had caused the young man also to be deaf and mute. Well, Jesus met other deaf people. He met mute people. 
He met people that had seizures in the New Testament, and he didn't attribute it to the demonic. He just said it's pure physical, and he, he brought about a physical healing. But he said this is a spiritual matter. It's demonic. This was real evil. I may, if, if I'm blind, it may be a result from the fall, but it's not because the blindness was not caused by, by evil. This is real evil. We must realize the truth of Scripture that we as individuals right here, we don't have to look far. We have a sinful nature, a natural bent toward evil. And the Bible teaches that our sinful natures are encouraged by the corporate sinful natures of the world around us. The Bible teaches that behind all of that, behind our sin natures, the corporate nature of a sinful world, we have the presence of Satan and his followers. Look at Ephesians 6.12. I mean, it says it very plainly. For our struggle, our struggle, the struggle we have at Christ Presbyterian Church is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. People, every morning when we rise, we face a day where we will do battle. Tomorrow morning I'll get up and I will do battle with my own sin nature. I've got to walk through the day with this, this bent inside of me to sin, to push back against God. We will do battle with the sinful natures in the world around us. All the prejudices, all the biases, all the lust, all the materialism. And behind that all, we will do battle with the powerful force of Satan that is the backdrop of all that evil. You say, well, John, I've never seen the demonic. We're prone to think that the 21st century is too modern for such things as, as demons. People, I'm, I'm not asking you to read the Bible. Go read the biographies of Lenin, of Hitler, of Mao Zedong, of Stalin, of Idi Amin. They were all 20th century icons of evil, precursors of the Antichrist. Read those, and if you can't see the demonic, you're blind. God does need to change your heart. We walk by babies in, in this. We talk about our modern age, and you know we, we really don't see demons. We walk by babies created in the image of God, being snatched from their mother's womb for no other reason than that they are inconvenient, and you don't see the demonic. We walk by girls in the city, and I'm not talking about Chicago. I'm talking about here. We walk by girls in the city every day who've been made sexual slaves. I mean, slaves. And we can't see the demonic. We walk by educational institutions who somehow think it is their obligation, absolute obligation, to score and to laugh. At God as creator, at God as sustainer, as God at redeemer. You don't see the demonic? Let me tell you, 
when rot gets bad enough, when the core is rotten, what does the rotten core think? The rotten core thinks, hey, rot's normal. Rot's a good thing. Demons, I don't see demons. Evil, I don't see evil. They were blind to the depth and power of evil. Secondly, they were tempted to think that the battle against evil is futile. Look at verse 40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Jesus said, you're unbelieving. You're a perverse generation. Then Jesus said, bring the child to me. Jesus could do something about the evil. And he looked at them and he said, you could have too. Notice it was the father who came and spoke to Jesus, not his disciples. They had given up. That's where so many of us are. I've been there. No matter what we do, the evil is just always going to be there. You feel like that sometimes? I do. I just want to walk away from it, pretend like it doesn't exist because there's nothing I can do about it. That's the one thing that Scripture calls us not to do. No matter what it costs, you address it. To Jesus, the existence of evil was not inevitable. That's not the way this book reads. The book says there will be a day when it will be destroyed. Do you understand what it will be like one day? When we're transformed, we will not have a sin nature. That's incredible. And this book says until then we are to be salt in this world. What does salt do? Salt inhibits and prohibits the putrefaction. It inhibits the rot. We're supposed to be salt. I mean, it's looking at the world as being rotten and saying, you know, I'm sending you in the world to be salt. I'm sending you into the darkness to bring light. In 1 John, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit was speaking. And he said to the congregation to whom John was writing in 1 John, Greater is he who is in you than the one in the world. We need to hear that. The one said youth is greater than the evil. What if William Wilberforce and John Newton had said, slave trade in England, forget about it. It's, it's inevitable. It's going to be here. There's nothing. It's roots are too deep. There's nothing we can do about it. What if they'd said that? You'd say, well, who in the world is William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce, Wilberforce was a Christian serving in England's parliament. He had worked tirelessly for years to abolish the slave trade. And he worked, it was in the name of Christ. He was a Christian. One night in the middle of his long struggle, Wilberforce sat at his desk and it was just in despair. He didn't think he had the strength to continue. It was just overwhelming. He had been defeated so many times, vote after vote after vote. He turned to his Bible hoping that God would speak to him through the word. And a letter fell out of his Bible. It was a letter that he hadn't seen in several years. And he smiled and he picked it up. He knew what it was. And he began to read it. 
Let me read it to you. My dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be an Athanasian, an Athanasius against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that awful enemy, which is the scandal of Christianity, of England, and of humanity. Unless God has raised you up to do this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the violence that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. I pray that he has, that he that has guided you from your youth may continue to strengthen you in this and all things, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. That was one of the last letters John Wesley wrote. John Wesley had died, but that letter remained. Wilberforce said, I blew out the candle and went to bed. I needed the rest for the fight that lay ahead. You know, how long it was after that? How long after that Wilberforce fought? Fifteen more years. But there came a day when by the grace of God, under the influence of William Wilberforce, that the parliament voted to abolish slavery and the slave trade in England. And it was just days after that that William Wilberforce died. It may take your whole life. But we can't stop being salt. We can't stop being light. People, it is not a mature and wise voice that tells us we can do nothing about the evil of this world. Remember, the world wants to say to us, oh, you're Don Coyote. You're jousting with windmills and they laugh at us. That's not what the Bible says. John the Baptist, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus, Paul, Peter, they weren't jousting with windmills. And the world's better for it. They were blind to the depth and power of evil. They were tempted to think that the battle against evil was futile. Thirdly, and lastly, they didn't understand the high cost of the battle. That was another reason they were ineffective. Look at verses 43 and 44. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They've gone through this awful thing, this chaotic experience, and right after it's over with, he said, guys, you do understand that I'm going to be crucified. Evil will have its day. He was saying, Peter, the battle in which I am engaged will cost me my life. He was saying it will always cost, it will also cost you your life. James, the one that was on the mountain, James, the one that was there that day, he was standing there probably within a few feet of Jesus when Jesus said at the close of this episode, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die. James is right there. 
Listen to Acts 12.1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James. James, the brother of John, the one on the mountain, the one who was there that day. He had him put to death. James was the first apostle martyred. Nine of his brothers, nine of the apostles would be martyred. It cost you your life. People, that's the Jesus that calls us, and that's that's what we've been called to do. They were blind to the depth and power of evil. Don't be blind and don't be blind to the depth and power of evil. Don't think that the battle, don't let Satan con you. Don't think that the battle against evil is futile. And understand the high cost. I would love to have been at the Council of Nicaea. It was in the fourth century AD. Meeting from all from leaders of all the Mediterranean church, east and west, north and south. Three hundred and eighteen delegates were attending. Out of three hundred and eighteen, there were only twelve delegates that had not lost an eye or a hand or did not limp because they'd been tortured for their faith. Only 12. Only 12. What a testimony. Why were, why, why had, why there, why had their eyes been put out? Why did they have the scars of lashes on their backs? Why did they limp from persecution? It wasn't because the world carried the battle to them. It was because they carried the battle to the world. They got it. They understood it. Amen. We have